Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 71. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's Laura Reagan, LCSWC, with today's episode. Hi, welcome back. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. In today's episode, I invite you to think differently about a subject that many of us have already made our minds up about. It's something that has affected almost everyone in some way, whether you've ever known anyone who has struggled with substance abuse, whether you've struggled with substance abuse yourself. Maybe you've been negatively impacted by substance abuse at some point during your life. And because of that, you have very clear ideas about individuals who suffer with substance abuse and addiction. Our country is one in which substance abuse is very widespread. We have legal and illegal substances that people use to varying degrees. And there's a lot of difference in the way it's perceived, whether you drink alcohol socially, whether you smoke marijuana, or whether you use prescription medications, or illegal drugs such as, well, marijuana is illegal in many places. And there's, of course, cocaine, hallucinogenics, opiates, The opiate abuse problem is huge here in Maryland, and I know throughout many places in the United States, people are dying from heroin and other opiate overdoses at a rate that's unprecedented. But that's not all that new. I lost a friend to a heroin overdose more than 20 years ago, and substance abuse affects all of us. Whether we have a loved one who is abusing substances and we are struggling with the way that their addiction has impacted our families, or whether we have our own history of addiction or substance abuse. And one could argue, and I would definitely agree with this, that it's not only legal and illegal substances like alcohol and drugs that we abuse 
but there are many ways that we can use addictions to divert ourselves from our emotional experiences. So in today's episode, I'll be talking with Robert Cox, PLPC, who has worked in the field of addictions for many years and is now a therapist and podcaster with a podcast called Mindful Recovery. And Robert is going to talk today with me about how trauma plays a role in addiction. So I hope you'll enjoy this interview, which I thought was very interesting, and that you might think a little bit differently about substance abuse and addiction by the end. Enjoy. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, my guest is Robert Cox, PLPC. Robert, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Thanks for having me today, Laura. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I'm really happy that you could take the time. We've kind of talked about having each other on our podcast and we finally got it coordinated. So I'm really glad that you're here because I know you're an expert in addictions, trauma, and mindfulness, and all of those things. I don't work with addiction, but, you know, the substance abuse seems to be a story for many of my clients who have experienced trauma, whether in the past or present. So I'm really eager to pick your brain about it. It is. It's at the root of almost every addiction is trauma. Yeah. So I want to ask you all about that. But first, can you just talk about yourself and your work a little bit more? Let our audience know who you are and what you do. Yeah, I am provisionally licensed in the state of Missouri. I have a practice near Kansas City and I specialize in autism, trauma and addictions. Um, All of those really are trauma related situations. So that's how I got into all of them. And I use mindfulness as a way to create this kind of emotionally regulated space where we can sit with the things that are creating problems for us in our lives, those trauma spaces. And I produce a podcast to try and help people do the same in between their therapy sessions uh, to be able to hold that kind of emotionally hurtful space at times called Mindful Recovery. It's available on iTunes and other platforms. Yes, your podcast is getting a lot of attention. I'm very happy for you with that because um, I've listened to some of the episodes and found it to be really wonderful. I especially personally was fascinated with the interview with Dwayne Osterland about connection between porn addiction and trauma and other types of process addictions and also how it affects partners that fascinated me. Yeah, I got a lot out of that, too, because sexual addictions really isn't my area. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed talking with him about that because he really is knowledgeable in that area. Yeah. So and you are very knowledgeable in your work. So first, let me say you mentioned how trauma and autism are related. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, and this is a, an area that I've been working in for the past, trying to lecture in for the past three or four years and really change the way we view and treat autism as a trauma event. And um, I've been reading a book lately about trauma. It's actually a trauma book about trauma treatment and stuff and kind of the brain science involved. And we know that autism creates a situation where, you know, at two years old, we have our maximum number of neural connections and they're in the trillions. And after two years old, the brain starts to prune away those ones we aren't 
using. So, you know, the old saying, the, the neurons that fire together, wire together, right? Right. And so trauma really affects those paths of the neural wiring. Well, in, in kids with autism, that pruning really doesn't occur very well. And so the lower functioning the individual, the less pruning that has probably occurred. What this results in is an amygdala that's very dense in those neural connections, too dense, in fact, and is much denser than the average amygdala. And you also have the hypersensitivity to sensory input so that the sensory input takes on actual physical proportions. So I've had individuals who say they didn't want to take a shower because it felt like their skin was on fire every time water fell on their skin. Or individuals who said that when their sensory issues got really bad, it felt like there were ants crawling all over their body. So we, the senses get confused and it creates a very traumatic, very real experience. Now that experience then triggers the amygdala, which is hypersensitive to everything. And it overreacts and we go into meltdown mode. So really, I, I view this as a, a trauma event, complex trauma, when we consider the fact that at, in middle school and junior high, they're almost always the subject of bullying. In my adult groups, for high-functioning individuals, the thing we deal with more than anything is the bullying that they suffered in junior high and high school and how that's still affecting them. So that is my kind of way that we need to be dealing with this is as a complex trauma and dealing with those sensory issues. All the research shows that if you deal with the sensory issues, the need for the behavioral services goes way down. And that's why it makes sense that our work, as you know, as a trauma therapist, is primarily about trying to make people feel safe in the world that they're in right now. And that really is at the root of dealing with autism for me. Hmm. So you're saying that you, your concept of autism is that it is not necessarily caused by trauma, but it is a traumatic experience to have autism. Exactly. It's a trauma-inducing disorder. And so what we, the way I treat it is, is by teaching people through mindfulness to hold that kind of space, to focus on one thing, to, fo- to work out the sensory issues. I go in and we do a sensory assessment and create a sensory diet. And so some very typical things, but my approach is a little different in that my whole view is what is it that's making you feel unsafe, i.e. what are the sensory issues and how can we account for that? Right. And it, it seems to be working very well. And the rest of the field seems to be coming around to this view, too, over the past few years. So um, it's exciting. Uh, the progress that I've seen in my patients has been really exciting. So that is exciting. And I always am happy when we can have a more complex understanding about what's really happening instead of these simplistic ways of looking at things that sort of the older way is, oh, you know, this person has a disorder, there's nothing you can do about it. And I know we call a lot of things disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder or autism spectrum disorder, but thinking of a disorder as something that just won't change about the person and, you know, can only be, quote unquote, coped with versus actually recovering from. I like the recovery perspective a lot better. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I wanted to ask you about in particular today is about the prevalence of trauma in people who experience substance abuse or overuse and addiction. How can we look at substance abuse through a trauma lens? 
Well, I think I want to say, first of all, that I agree with Gabor Mate, who says that every addiction is about trauma. I really have come to believe that, that there is a phase in, in nearly everyone's life where in adolescence that we're going to experiment with drugs and alcohol. It's just it's really just part of our culture that we're going to experiment. But most of us move on past that. People with trauma cling to that because it becomes a way of coping with the critical voices, the the PTSD, the all that stuff that gets triggered with trauma. And so early on, that use, uh, almost all the patients I've ever worked with who were really hardcore drug users of methamphetamines or heroin or opiates started when they were 12, 13, 14 years old with marijuana or alcohol and found out that was a really effective way to get rid of that inner turmoil. Um, so for me, I just work on, you know, what I see and what I see all the time is trauma is at the root of every addiction. I know some studies have shown that in, you know, populations who are incarcerated for substance related issues, whether it was prostituting to support an addiction or selling drugs or just being caught with drugs, that at least 80% in a female population had a prior history of sexual abuse. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, physical, sexual, and and you know as a trauma therapist that that often the emotional and mental abuse is worse than the physical abuse. Maybe in some ways it's unfair to say that because they go hand in hand. And so separating them out is very difficult. But it's those messages that we give kids that you're not of value, that your only value is in the ways that I use you, that become very damaging. And so the real horror about this is that all those messages get internalized. And if I am walking through my life constantly hearing in the back of my mind these voices telling me that I'm worthless and what a piece of crap I am and this and that, who wouldn't pick up to stop those voices? If, if at 14, 15 years old, you give me a substance that I can take and all those voices stop, you bet you I'm looking for more. Yeah. And, you know, you're describing emotional abuse where someone tells you explicitly, you're stupid, you're a piece of crap. But there is also that emotional neglect where people just internalize the message of I'm worthless, no one loves me, right. I don't matter. And, and that's not based on anything that anyone says. It's a child's interpretation of not getting their emotional needs met to mean that they don't have value as a human being. Yeah, it's very, very clear. You're not worth my time, you know? Yeah, you I don't matter to is, me. Right. You're not worth, you know, the time it would take for me to invest in you in this way or that way. Sure, that message gets across very clearly. And often it's not a message, especially in the case of, like you said, neglect. It's not a message that is one time and done. It's repeated constantly over a lifetime for that child. Yeah, I've heard so many people say, you know, I don't know what it was that made me so unlovable that my own mother didn't want me. Right, right. And that's a real broken space. And if if you're in that environment, you're not exactly being handled, handed the tools um, that makes it easy to cope with those kind of spaces, right? Um, generally, the people who are doing that to you also are broken and have not very good coping skills. 
And so if the only coping skill you have available that you know how to use is drugs, that's what you're going to use. Right. And I know that for opiates like, you know, prescription pain pills and obviously heroin um, and other opiates like that, people will say when they take it, they just feel like everything's going to be okay. Everything melts away. You know, one of the ways that painkillers work is that they 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 make it difficult to hold on to any specific thought for a long time. So pain is really not just a physical sensation. It's a thought. I'm, I'm holding on to this. It hurts. Something is being signaled. Well, these opiates make it difficult for my brain to grasp that expression of pain for any length of time. And so it becomes very effective because I don't have to go through the whole day with these voices in my head. I can just take this pill and everything melts away. And it's like a wonderful little mental vacation. Yeah, I suspect, and I'm not a substance abuse specialist, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect that it's that ease of, you know, feeling there's nothing wrong right now that can be addictive. It's it's twofold, really, with the things like the opiates and marijuana and drugs like that. It's benzodiazepines are really that way. It's about the doesn't really matter. I don't care. This feels good. I'm just going to sit in this space. With things like methamphetamine, cocaine, some of the psychostimulants, it's quite the opposite in that whether it matters or not, I know I can handle it because now I'm Superman and I can conquer everything. Mm. So it's this almost kind of manic, I'm on top of the world phase. Nothing can touch me. I'm above it all, right? Okay. So the the difference is subtle but real. It's two sides of the same coin, both of them being my problems no longer exist. Either I am power, all powerful and can handle them or they just don't matter because they've melted away. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it just seems in both cases to describe the real problem is the emotional state that the person has when they're not intoxicated. Right. And it's that very dysregulated kind of space where it's the constant self-criticism where even spilling a glass of tea at dinner is the end of the world. I've had patients describe to me incidents where just that happened. They spilled a glass of water and it was the, this constant barrage in the back of their head. You're so stupid. You're so clumsy. How could you do that? You know, where most of us spill a glass of water and, you know, it's like, oh, well, and we clean it up and that's the end of it. But for individuals with all that trauma and like you said, the neglect, the negative voices, it becomes this kind of end of the world catastrophize scenario where we take everything to the nth degree and, and we are of no value any longer all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, it's that mm, I'm a little short of money this week. So that means I'm going to be living under a bridge next week, kind of catastrophizing, you know? Yeah. Everything Good. becomes very urgent. Everything feels like it's either I'm on top of the world or it's the end of the world. Yeah. Everything's amplified. Right. So how do you work with people who have trauma and addiction in your work? And how does mindfulness fit in? Mindfulness I use in several ways, but almost immediately when someone comes into my office and they say, I've been using, first thing we do is assess the level of use. Have you been using marijuana frequently or are you shooting speed balls, a mixture of methamphetamine and heroin? Um, obviously that latter is a much more dangerous situation. So we need to approach it a little differently. And so if they come in with that, 
as then we start dealing with, okay, we got to stop the use. We got to put some plans in place so that doesn't happen anymore. And then we move on to the mindfulness component. But mindfulness comes very early before we start digging into the trauma because I want to create a space within so that when you're not in my office, if something happens that triggers that trauma space and you're out in the community, you have a default tool that you can go back to to create kind of this feeling of safety and security within yourself, at least long enough that you can call a sponsor, call me, get back into my office, do what we need to do to take care of ourselves. But really mindfulness creates this kind of lowered anxiety state on a day-to-day basis so that I have a resistance and the ability to cope and breathe through things that I didn't before. So that's the real power of it. And that's where I begin always. And then as we get into the trauma, we use techniques like reparenting techniques with, with uh, visualizations that go with the mindfulness and, you know, Often that little kid was told that they're worthless, whether it was through implicit neglect or it was explicitly being told, you know, you're a horrible kid. Often that came with physical or sexual abuse. So we try and use very specific visualizations to rewrite some of those messages and reparent that inner child and begin to see that that's not how it should have been and begin to look at. Um, that child through a lens of what should have been for them so that we can strengthen that. And then I also like to do a lot of work on, you know, um, when we get to the point that that stronger core is built, we start to build on the outside by having the client get squarely in touch with what their strengths are so that we're building this inner core that it no longer seeks out external validation, but is more internally motivated. So instead of looking outside of oneself and, you know, if I get into this relationship or if I get this job or if I lose weight to this degree, then I will be worthy. Right. We try and build that core that says, I'm a human being of value. These are my strengths and weaknesses. And this is what makes me good and awesome and unique. And then when I spill a glass of tea, it's not the end of the world because I know who I am. I just spilled a glass of tea, right? Or when someone says some mean, hurtful thing to me in the world, I know who I am. I don't have to internalize that. That can remain external. I'm not looking for my validation in your eyes right now. Mm. That's beautiful because we are all just people. And whether we've, you know, we've all made mistakes, we've all suffered, we've all done things that we're not proud of. We have things that we don't like about ourselves, but we're all equally worthy of love and belonging. And, you know, that doing things you're not proud of is such a big cycle in addictions. Um, Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this is, okay. let's look at the ways we were broken, where our broken spaces are, you know, and that I, I wrote recently about, you know, what Rumi said about, you know, the wound is the place that the light enters you. Mm-hmm. And those broken spaces can be the places that we begin to clean that wound out and we begin to heal. And, you know, in that process, we become stronger through our whole bodies around that one wound. And so we begin to realize that, you know, this is how I was wounded and this is how I've wounded myself. And we begin to find strength in healing those places. I think if we take judgment out of it and just examine what was really going on there, pretty much everything, 
all of our behavior has an explanation, you know, from childhood, from birth on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, fundamentally, every behavior is a form of communication. Yeah. So the question is, what are you trying to say to me? I, I deal with this a lot with autism and that kids have meltdowns and they get behaviorally challenged is the big word in the field. And and my thing is, you know, really, it's a communication challenge. What are you trying to say to me? What's hurting you? What are you afraid of? And it's the same with addictions, you know, this behavior, this picking up the needle and putting it in my arm and making things wash away is a behavior. And there's something being communicated there. And generally it is, I hurt and I don't want to anymore. All of the bad things that might create judgment and shame and guilt that come out of that, come out of it as a desire to not hurt, to continue that cycle of shooting up drugs so I don't have to hurt because I don't know how to get out of that. And so really what mindfulness helps is to teach them that pain, I tell my patients all the time, pain is a guarantee in life. It is a part of life. Suffering doesn't have to be. Suffering is a choice that we create when we try to run away from the pain. And so mindfulness is about really trying to learn to become an observer of that pain and see what it's trying to communicate to me. Being able to sit with it for a little while and realize that it's not going to end me. Yeah, if you if we can tolerate discomfort and pain, it passes. And the more we resist it, you know what they say, the more what you resist persists. Right. Yeah, you begin to build a tolerance. And you begin to sit with the next time and say, well, I made it through this before. And so just like with every other thing, every positive experience we have pushes us in that direction, makes us believe that we can. And so if, if we can get them in our office to sit there and just experience that and hold that pain for even just for 30 minutes out of a session, then they walk out of there knowing, okay, I can survive this. Well, this has been really wonderful. And I hope people who are listening, who are thinking, you know, wow, do I use substances that way? And what do I need to examine in myself? And could mindfulness help me? And is there trauma that I'm not naming as trauma and not realizing? Because almost all of us have some kind of traumatic experience that can be affecting us. I hope they'll recognize themselves in this discussion and certainly listen to your podcast and reach out for support and know that we're not alone. Yeah, I really, the message I want to get across to any listeners out there with substance abuse issues is you are not a bad person. You may have done bad things, but you are not those things that you have done. They come out of a place. Often they come out of the fact that once I take the first drink, it's very, very difficult to say no to the rest of them uh, because the chemical works on my brain that way. So getting rid of that shame really is the first step into walking into a therapist's office is Often it happens out of desperation in that the pain of staying the same has overcome the fear of, of challenging that space. Well, Robert, how can people find you, what you're doing, and your podcast? I am at www.liferecoveryconsulting.org. And if you go there, um, my podcast tab is up there. My stork tab is up there. Or you can look on iTunes for Mindful Recovery Podcast. It's available on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and soon, I think, iHeartRadio. So any of those ways, uh, my website is liferecoveryconsulting.org and the podcast is available on there. Awesome. 
Robert Cox of Mindful Recovery, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Thanks for having me, Laura. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Robert Cox of Mindful Recovery. Since we recorded this interview, Robert has started a new podcast in his other specialty area, so I want to be sure you know about that. His new podcast is called Listening to Autism. It's a podcast dedicated to bringing research, supports, and interviews with professionals in the field to individuals and families living with life on the autism spectrum. Both podcasts, Mindful Recovery and Listening to Autism, are available on Robert's website, which is liferecoveryconsulting.com. Thanks so much for listening to Therapy Chat today. I hope you've enjoyed this perspective on addiction, substance abuse, and trauma. And I'd love to hear your feedback. Please feel free to visit my website and you can send me a message using SpeakPipe. I love receiving your messages. I'm so grateful to all of you for listening. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, visit Laura's website at www.lauraregan.lcswc.com. 